Hi everyone and welcome to the Unknown Developer Podcast. I'm Bruno and I'll be your host on this show. On today's episode, I had the great pleasure to talk with Abbas. He will share his experiences, some interesting projects he worked on, and we will talk about leadership. Let's check it out. Welcome to the second season of the Unknown Developer Podcast. And today we have Abbas here. So Abbas, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Bruno? I'm good. Thank you. So it's a great pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for joining the, this episode. Happy to be here with you, Bruno. I was following your uh, podcasts. Uh, we have a common friend, so I was listening to that. That's very interesting. Yeah. Thanks for doing that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, let's start by you introducing yourself. Okay, that's the easy part. So, yeah, my name is Abbas Adil. I'm, I come from Egypt. I'm a software developer. Let's say I'm 35 years old. Will be 36 very soon. So, getting older. <laughs> and uh, I live in Germany right now. I work in a company called Smava. It's a loan broker in Germany. And, uh, yeah, so... Let's go to the past and uh, tell us how did you start working on IT or studying software development? I was a good student. So let's say that I, I, I know how to study and I knew how to get the full marks in the exams. In Egypt, the education system is, let's say, ranked based. So if you get the highest rank, you have the choice to select whatever university you want to go to. So I got very good grades in the high school. So I had the chance to go wherever I want. My father was a pharmacist, so he wanted me to be a pharmacist. I wanted to be a software engineer. So I was playing with PHP at that time, created some small websites, playing around. Um, I guess all my generation had the chance to play with PHP and do some interesting stuff. So I went to the software engineer uh, engineering faculty in Egypt. My father was very sad, I remember, because he wanted me to run his pharmacy. But later he understood that I had a different passion. And yeah, I was, as I said, I was a good student. Again, I got the full marks in my university. I also got the chance to join the faculty to teach. Again, my father saw that I should be a faculty member. It's it's something in Egypt. It's like a prestigious thing to be like a, working for for a university. And again, uh, again, I had different opinion. I wanted to work as a software engineer to get my money. I mean, to spend on myself. You know, I was a student, so my father, all my family was like paying for all my stuff. So I wanted to be independent. So I refused to work for the university. And then I was working since then as a software engineer. So that's how I get into software engineering. And I started to work back in 2007. Since then, I work as a backend Java developer. Oh, great. So you have the opportunity to teaching also. So yeah, that's really nice. And uh, well, I'm also interested in uh, the IT industry in other countries. What do you can tell us about the, the IT industry on uh, Egypt? So back in 2007, when I joined, it was just starting in Egypt. So we had the major companies, the corporates, like 
running uh, or leading the, the industry. We had very, very few startups. In between, we had the outsourcing companies doing outsourcing work for outside Egypt, mostly the Gulf area. I was lucky to work for um, Vodafone at the time to start my career in Vodafone. So it was a corporate. I was learning a lot, experiencing all the technology that they offered at the time. And I was working for four years in Vodafone. Then I moved to another operator in Egypt, working with the same technology stack. Let's say at that time, I, I could compare a scene, the technology scene in Egypt with outside. And at that time, I can tell the technology that we used to have in Egypt is a bit outdated, not like overall the country, but like in the most um, prestigious cooperation, like Vodafone and the other operator. So that, that's why I was interested to maybe travel outside and try to do interesting stuff. Germany was my first destination. I wanted to go there since I was traveling before, having some conferences in in Germany. I wanted to have like a, a grace period. So I went as a student to Germany with my family to do a master's degree. And then I stayed. If I compare now the technology seen now in Germany and Egypt, I would say it's almost similar. I mean, it's almost similar everywhere. People started to use the latest technologies. You used to work with the cloud providers. In my company, for example, we use microservices, React, and the new front-end technologies. We have that now everywhere in Egypt. Um, so yeah, the technology scene now is very advanced. We have a lot of startups. And uh, yeah, I would say the economy, the technology economy is booming. I mean, Egypt is big. This is 100 million people country. So technology is... Um, I mean, important and there's a lot of things to do. Right. And I think because of the open source and uh, because the technology is more accessible uh, via Internet, like most of companies around the world are using like similar technologies. And I experienced uh, the same in Brazil. Like when I moved to Germany, I saw that uh, here we are using the same things that uh, is being used in, in Brazil by companies. Like some big corporations struggle more to like change, like for example, to microservice or to agile. But anyway, it you see that there is this this movement. So yeah, very interesting. But before we we move to Germany, uh, I would like to know some interesting projects that you work back then in Egypt. If you can tell about some of the the projects that you work. Yes, yes, for sure. So we had the Egyptian revolution. Maybe some of the people listening to us will know about it. So in 2011, we had the revolution. People didn't, let's say, like the regime. So uh, people went to streets. They wanted the regime to go away. Uh, I was young at that time. I, I joined that part. And it did happen. The regime went away. And uh, we had a new system and election. And yeah, interesting time. In between, we had, uh, let's say, a chaos time. The police disappeared because people were, were in all the streets running and, you know, uh, fighting the police and anyone taking uh, the, the system side. Uh, so the police disappeared. And then we had the problem with the security all over the country. So uh, as an engineer, I'm, I'm trying to solve things by using the technology. So I created a, a project with my friends It's a, let's say like a, a crowd sourcing map. So we crowd source information on a map. It, and 
this is more about crime. So we ask people to send crime information and we put it uh, on a map. Um, so we wanted to have this view of Egypt and mainly Cairo, the, the capital, and see the patterns of things happening and also um, give that information to people so they can also protect themselves. So let's say if someone um, lost his car in one place and that so that person would report to us. Of course, they have to go to the police because they need an official report, but they also report to us because the police um, reports are not public in Egypt. So they come to us and they also post on the, the map the information that uh, they have. And yeah, whenever the more reports we have, the more accuracy we can put in the map, the more accurate information, and also uh, maybe warn people who live in that place that maybe some someone is stealing cars. Uh, I remember this very specific case that um, a, a special car model w was very famous at that time that it, it gets stolen everywhere. So we were the first ones to discover that because we received a lot of reports about that specific car. So we published that information and we told the people to protect themselves and protect the cars. Uh, and we have so many cases like that. Um, so we created this map and we also had many cooperation with the government at the time, the police, later the army, because that was like a new kind of information that was really useful for the, the police and also for the people. Um, I mean, if you lose your mobile phone, maybe it's not that important. So you don't go to the police station and report it. Maybe you don't trust that it's not coming back any, any way. But when we encouraged people to report to us so that either we help them, like other people help them, or maybe we give that information to other people so that they can also take care of that. Uh, so that was really uh, a huge project. And we had cooperation also with Google at the time, Microsoft, Nokia. Um, yeah, that was a big thing. But later on, um, we stopped because the system was back and everything was like normal. And it was also illegal to col collect that kind of information. <laughs> but at that time, that was really interesting to have this kind of crime map that was, I think, the first time in Egypt. Not sure. In like Middle East, but that was the first in Egypt. And that was uh, the research that I did when I did my master, how to use this crime map to, um, let's say, find new kinds of information. Oh, great. Uh, actually, it's a very uh, useful project and very interesting. Back in Brazil, I, I used to work in uh, a building that, uh, close to this building, that uh, there was a street that at night was... Uh, not crowded mm -hmm. and people were getting stole there like uh, for almost uh, 10 years the same guy was stealing people there <laughs> and uh, yeah i mean if you have like some application like this that can show you the dangerous parts in the near city like it's very useful yeah yes um we we had also like a, a research researcher who contacted us and we gave him the data. The data is already public. And he also made the research about the relation between the, the height of the building 
and the likelihood that someone will get stolen in that area. The more buildings with high heights in the in the area, the darker the, the streets at night. So they, this gives a high probability that yeah, someone will get stolen or a car will get stolen. I mean, I saw many interesting research using the same data. And again, I mean, the crime data is not public in Egypt. So that's that was the only source of information to use. Similar project, um, which is still running, I'm, I'm also part of that, but um, not an active part anymore. It's called Haras Map. It's like a, a map of, again, Egypt, but this time for sexual harassment. So this is an organization I'm working with. I mean, using the same concept. We want to map the sexual harassment information on the map. So this is one part to collect the data from people. And the second part is to run campaigns online, offline, uh, in the media to uh, like spread the awareness of the sexual harassment, why it's happening and how to fight that and how to stop that. This is still learning using the same exact same concept, but this is really more interesting because um, yeah, when you talk about sexual harassment, it's really like a taboo. So when you show the data to the people, like, okay, it's happening and how much it's happening and you show the details, people maybe change their minds about it. Yeah, that's for sure. Like create this awareness, it's uh, really important because it's something that happened in the, like everyone should be aware of it and like help somehow to slow down uh, this kind of bad situation. Yeah, but yes. also a nice project. I mean, uh, I can list you so many projects that came out of the Egyptian revolution. At that time, people felt that, okay, this is my country, so I have to do something. So every group of people tried to use what they know most, a new technology. So I created online projects. Some other people did uh, some offline or maybe on streets projects. One, one interesting project that we did as well as a team, I have a group of friends that we try things um, from time to time. It's, it, it is called Mosi Meter. Mosi was the name of the president that uh, was elected at that time, 2012. So at the time, this was the first elected president. And we had this feeling that, okay, we choose that president. So maybe we can find a way to make him accountable. Luckily, in his uh, uh, election campaign, he created this list that he will do so many stuff in the first 100 days. So we created this very simple website, just listing all what he said he will do in the first 100 days. And it was like a to-do list or maybe a checklist. So every time he does something, we check that. And if he doesn't do something, we say he didn't do it. Just one page website. And we did it in the same day he was elected. And that was a very, very famous project in Egypt. We got so many traffic. The same day we created that uh, project, even I mean, the server couldn't couldn't handle all the traffic that we had. We also got a lot of like public attention, like media attention. Uh, we had to, I mean, we did interviews with CNN, BBC, um, news um, agencies from Canada, Japan. I think this is the first time something like this happens in the Middle East. Some group of young people tried to make the president accountable. Uh, luckily, at that time, it's not. It was not dangerous. Yeah, you know, we had this. Uh, the people had this power that they can do anything they want to do in Egypt. 
So we used the same momentum and created that website. And that was a very successful website. It, it was done after the 100 days. It was a lot of work to research and find news. Uh, we also had cooperation with the presidential office. So we got like access to information. We used to work with some newspaper to give us information. So that was interesting. Uh, after the 100 days, we stopped because we couldn't continue. It was like a lot of hard work and all the team had full-time jobs. So we didn't, it was like a lot to do. But the good part that um, other people uh, carried over the project, like outside Egypt. So we had people from Tunisia who created the same concepts uh, from Canada, from India, from, from many other places. So this is still happening. Whenever a person in power gets elected, someone will create a, like a page and say, okay, that person said he will do this and that, and he will try to make that person accountable. They always refer to the most meter because maybe it's not the first one to do it. Maybe other try to do it before, maybe in the US, since US is more like advanced in the, in the democracy things. But it was really famous because it was coming from the Middle East. Sometimes I get invited to go somewhere to talk about the, the Mosimeter experience to share it with others. Sometimes I get emails to ask, I mean, they ask me how to do the same thing. It's very simple. So that was very interesting at the time. But uh, now we had, have a different president and um, maybe the freedom of expression is not as before. So it's really hard to do some kind of that. But still, uh, it's worth talking about it and maybe others will carry out. The, the same concept and do it somewhere. Yeah, that's true. I think it's a good lesson about uh, how democracy should work. Yeah, very interesting project. And it's good to know that uh, other countries uh, try to do the same. And I mean, it's very inspiring like to have something like this. Yeah, very interesting. Maybe you can create something for Brazil. Yeah, we should have something <laughs> there. <laughs> it, it's very simple. I mean, it's not, it's like, four hours of work, like creating this HTML. It's even an HTML page. There's no like programming language behind it or the database, it's just one simple HTML. Yeah, true. Yeah, I think the challenge the, right now for this kind of project, it's somehow how to collect the true news, like not, uh, because we have a yes. lot of fake news uh, going on on Facebook and other social media. And I think the challenge right now to this kind of project is to collect the uh, right information that's it's true and it's uh, like a, a fact that it's like already checked by, I don't know, but it's very interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the powerful thing about that project is, it, I mean, two powerful things. It was acting as a public memory. So people forget, right? So that's what the politician people use, that if they promise anything, people forget. So that was like a living memory. And the second part was this, what you just said, uh, the, the the facts. So we wanted, I mean, we took a position that we care about facts. We don't take any sides. So we are not on the side of the president. We are not on the side of the opposition. We just like listing facts. If something happens, that's good for everybody. If something doesn't happen, Maybe we need to understand why. I mean, that's why, I mean, we had to stop because it was really like hard, really hard to keep this position. After that, we started another project. It's, it's more what you said, fact checking. 
and now we have a big team running that project. I'm not part of it anymore. I just started the project with a friend. He's taking care of that. And it's more about fact checking. So what they do is trying to see the popular news, the trending news, and then they try to give it a rating, like how much fact information in the news, how much fake information in the news, and they give rating to the uh, the news, give a rating to the the person who is writing that piece of news, and also to the newspaper. So it's a kind of gamification. We want to rate uh, newspapers based on the good information that they publish, and it's doing good. I mean, it's hard to work in the Middle East in the news stuff, but I guess this is the safest distance. You can have an effect and still do something useful for the, the people. And uh, how it's the engagement of uh, people uh, around this project? Like, uh, how it's the ac acceptance like from the uh, folks that are, are using the, the system? Not that much. I would say, I mean, I mean, the problem with the media is that, I mean, it's, the media has a lot of money, right? So they have many places they publish the news and you, as a, like a small team working on, like with a limited budget, you want, you want to try to correct the, the, what the big media say, that's really tough. So like, not everybody sees that. So you have a limited reach. I mean, you need to spend a lot of money to get more reach. But I guess, um, yeah, you're building up like some audience. Uh, it takes time, it takes a lot of effort, but I guess the objective is not like to have many people following you. I guess you want to change the way people read the news so that they don't like rely on someone else to create the news. They just need to like question what is happening, maybe think if that piece of news can be reliable or not. And this is what, what we try to do. But still, I mean, there is like a gap, so that project still trying to fill that gap and the learning experience from that is also shared with other teams doing the same thing in, in other countries. As I said, I'm not working in that project anymore, but I know the concept and so far doing great. They got many awards for freedom of speech and yeah, so many awards from the famous media outlets. Nice. Uh, about those those projects that you, you worked, like it was uh, a work that you were doing with some friends in your spare time. It was not like a regular job, right? It was a side project. Yeah, it's just an idea. Sometimes I brainstorm with some friends and then we say, okay, we have this idea, let's do it. We try it for a week or two. If it works, that's good. If it doesn't work, then we give up immediately. We have also like fa many failed ideas. But this is where we learn. That's why I always mention the, the good stuff that we did. We also have other stuff that didn't, <laughs> didn't uh, do much. But as I said, I mean, this is the side projects. Some of them survived, uh, like Hagas Map, which is like working right now as an organization, social organization, NGO. This news outlet is working as a company and it's trying to have a business model and a stable revenue model. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Yeah, but I have to say that it's uh, really inspiring, like that you uh, you have the ability to do something, make a difference, and uh, you are doing this. And yeah, very interesting. And congratulations for that. It's really nice to know about all those projects, and it's really inspiring. Thanks, Bruno. <laughs> and then I moved to Germany. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, let's go back to that. So uh, how was to move abroad from Egypt to to Germany? Um. 
So yes, I wanted to change, as I said. Um, so I I was working since 2007, and after eight years of working, I I had this feeling maybe I should do something different. So I had this idea to go outside, but I didn't want to have like a full commitment, like going and working outside immediately. I said, okay, let's do a master's degree. I wanted also to have a master's degree. I did some interesting stuff. The, the, the first project I was talking on, the crime map thing, that was interesting. So I said, okay, maybe I can try to understand or use the data that I collected. I applied for a um, scholarship, it's called uh, Erasmus Mundus. So it's like a very prestigious scholarship um, they take almost four people from the Middle East, two from Asia, or like three from Asia, from US, I mean, North America, one from South America. I had a Brazilian guy. So I was lucky to be the only one selected from Egypt at the time. And um, the scholarship gives me the opportunity to study in three different universities. So I had the chance to study in Spain, Portugal, and in Germany. So I ended up in Germany. I did my master thesis about the crime map and then at the time I decided okay Germany looks good I have a lot of friends so maybe I can stay a bit and uh, try my, my luck I needed of course to get my some money back because I was spending a lot during my masters I had my family with me and then I started to work in Berlin so my first company to work for uh, it was Smava and since then I'm still working in Smava okay cool in uh, how was to adapt to a new place, a new culture in uh, a cold winter? That was interesting. I mean, Cairo, and I guess maybe Brazil is the same. I mean, we have this almost summer the whole year. So, so we have the hot summer in the summer time, and then we have the mild summer in the winter time. So, in the winter, let, let's give let me give you an example. Today, the weather in Cairo is between. 10 degrees in the evening and 26 in the morning. So this is this is like summer in Germany. Yes. <laughs> yeah, moving to Germany and then sometimes we see the rain. I mean, it doesn't rain much in, in Cairo. Uh, that was interesting. So every time we saw the rain, it was like, wow, it's raining. And then we go outside like crazy. And, you know, the, the same thing see, you see sometimes in TV. We used to do that. Uh, in the winter, oh, it's really cold and we stay inside and we have the, the heating. So it's okay. So we can get used to it. We have the a good jacket and you wear good stuff and don't feel that cold anymore. So that was different and that was a nice experience. And sometimes it keeps snowing, so we go outside and play with the snow. So that's completely different from Egypt. The problem is that you get used to it. <laughs> so after five years, now if it's raining, uh, okay, it's raining again. If it's snowing, oh yeah, it's snowing again. So you, you get used to it. Maybe in Germany, this year is an exception because it was snowing for almost two weeks now. And we, we just were discussing the some lakes were um, frozen. So you have the chance to go and walk on the lake and enjoy that. But uh, yeah, at the beginning, it was interesting. But once you get used to it, it became the new normal. Yeah, that's right. For people that are like interested in, in moving abroad, what kind of uh, advice would you give to them? Um, yeah, if, if that person is a fresh person, he, if that if he or she uh, was just graduated from the university, I would say try to work as a freelancer. I mean, of course, get a job in your country, 
but also try to work as a freelancer or do some open source projects because this gives you some experience what is uh, happening outside. Sometimes if you get a job in a new country, uh, maybe you will use an old system or something outdated. The one way to get some hands-on on the new technology stuff is to work as a freelancer or join a, an open source project. This gives you the experience that you may need to pass an interview to move to Germany, for example, or to move to, to the UK. So you need to have some hands-on playing with the, the technology that maybe others are using. For anyone who wants to travel outside, yes, of course, do it, man. I mean, you have to have the experience. Don't ask for other people to tell you their, their experience. You have to, to know if you like it outside or not. I have many friends who came to Germany and they didn't like it. And some of them went back to Egypt because they like the way they live in Egypt or they went to some other countries like UK, yeah, Canada. So you have to try it yourself. Some people like to travel outside, meet new people. Some people like to stay in the family, but you have to decide yourself. So do it now because the later you stay, the, the older you get and it's harder to uh, move around. Yeah, that's a good advice. I also agree that you should try at at least once. And uh, I know that everybody has different uh, experience. Sometimes it works out and you have a, a different experience in life and you end up meeting a lot of different people from different countries. And this is also something really nice. And also the case uh, for me and you, we, we have families. A new son goes to the school my also my daughter goes to school so it's now harder to go to another country and credit the, the education system so yeah that's why uh, everyone i meet if they they are not married yet or they don't have kids just try to move around and uh, then you will decide where you want to stay cool so uh, yeah let's talk about your uh, current situation here in berlin so you're uh, told that you are working at Smava. So I started as a software developer, Java developer. This is my experience. So I was working um, as a Java developer for some time. And then I was lucky that there was a new project and uh, they wanted someone to take the lead. So I stepped in as a senior software engineer for some time. And, and then I was the tech, the tech lead for that uh, team. And uh, later on, like one year later, we had this title technical product owner which is like a mixture between the a product owner and, and a technical lead so uh, i was giving that responsibility and i was working with that team for some time and then i took another team so i was working with two teams the, the other team was in a different country in spain so that was a different experience i really liked it and then uh, now i work as an engineering lead this is a also a mixture between uh, an engineering manager and the tech lead. So yes, um, I was lucky to work for Smava, moving from uh, one position to another and learning a lot. And yeah, the company is also like getting bigger and bigger. Yeah, so now I work as an engineering lead. This is a leadership position. So I'm doing, um, let's say, I'm managing people and also part of the taking decisions somewhere with some people in the company. Yeah, this is what I do right now. Cool. What were the challenges that you face uh, switching from these two positions, like from a software engineer to a more technical leadership position? Um, yeah, it, it was a big challenge. Um, I mean, as a developer, uh, you, you use, I mean, you get used 
that someone manages your time. So you have the product owner or the team lead, let's say. So you have tasks. So you have, you know, today you have this task or this week you have to finish this project or a few tasks. So someone is managing your time. Someone is telling you what to do. So all you have to do is, I mean, think about the, the problem and find the solution. So that is like straightforward. Uh, and you enjoy your time, alone time, thinking about the problem with few interaction with people. And that is really productive. So you feel that you're making something. Once you move into a leadership position, so you interact with a lot of people. Yeah, you're taking a lot of decisions, all part of taking part of a decision. And you have to uh, synchronize with many people about that decision. So let's say if the company says, okay, we want to do that. And they tell you. And so I have to go back and tell all the team members that that decision was taking and then make sure that they understand the decision and we have to do something we have and make sure that it happens. So I spend a lot of time talking to people. I spend a lot of time like attending meeting. That is a problem. Uh, so you have to learn how to manage your time the hard way. If you don't manage your time, people will <laughs> abuse you. Meetings will eat your brain. And at the end of the day, you don't feel that you are not productive at all. You are not making things anymore. That was a challenge. It's, it's still a challenge because, you know, when you make something and when you show it to the other people, you feel, you know, important. You feel that you are producing something. But if you are in the middle layer that um, synchronizing information between so many teams, so many people, you don't feel that productive. You don't feel that you are part of the, the action, the things that are very important for the company. And sometimes you think if I like go away for one year, nobody will notice. Everything will stay the same. So maybe I'm not that important anymore. Of course, the, the, the leadership position is really important because you enable other people to do their work. But coming from a software engineer background, it's really hard to, to understand this mindset that you help people to do their work. You act as a multiplier. So you multiply the, um, the effect. You're not, you're not just one person doing one thing. You are one person doing many things through other people because you enable them to do uh, what it what needs to be done. It's a mindset change. I mean, I'm, I'm in this position maybe for a year, maybe for some time. I don't even remember. But it's still a challenge to, to have this fight from the software engineer inside and the manager that you have to be. Yeah, I totally understand. And like as you said, sometimes you feel like you're doing nothing, but actually you're doing a really important job because uh, like software developers they they need someone like to to talk about their problems like to uh, like help them also in their careers it's a really important uh, part of the the team and uh, like the contributions that you, you you do to your team it's like change a lot how they engage to to the work they are doing yes yeah, I mean, thanks for to hear that from you. <laughs> yeah, sometimes um, we need the reminder that we are doing uh, something. Sure. <laughs> so, as we are talking about this, uh, I would like to know what, in your opinion, makes uh, a good leader. I guess the good leader needs to understand the people because everyone has a different way of doing things. So some people need like space to do things, so you don't have to like come to them and say, "Hey, how's things?" Are you done? Do you need some help? Some other people need a lot of like, you, you need to work very close with them. So you need to understand you, the people you are working with. You have, you, you need also to have some empathy to feel your team, uh, 
what what they feel, what the problems they have, because yeah, sometimes the, um, the way the people express themselves are not clear enough. And also trust. I mean, trust is really important. Developing trust in the team, trust the people that you work with, and they also trust you. This is really makes a big difference. Yeah, right. And well, you mentioned that you uh, used to work with a remote team, and uh, right now we are uh, all uh, working remotely. So, uh, yeah, I would like to know uh, some advice that you you do for leaders uh, out there that are uh, like starting with this kind of uh, position to lead uh, a group of people that are only working remotely. It's a challenge. I'm still learning building uh, a remote, a good remote team. I mean, so far, yeah, since I was working with the Spanish team. Um, I had to visit them from time to time because, yeah, as a as a team, we need to see each other. So this is one thing. So the team has to see each other somehow. I know maybe it's not an option for many of the teams, but they have to understand or um, see the people they work with. I mean, the human in connection is really important. And also, we have to be reminded that we are people. We are not like machines. Yes, maybe. The, we use communication over the chat and sometimes we tell each other okay you have you do this and I do that and this is understandable but we have also to do other stuff like make fun of things talk about different topics talking only about work will make us more robots than uh, people so we have again to grow this human connection with the team even remotely. Some people do this team building events, so they go online and play a game. I like that, I try that sometimes. And it's really working. I mean, the team has to feel that it's a team. So they know each other, they understand each other, maybe sharing some of um, the personal information. So sometimes I share my photos with my kid, doing what I'm doing in the, in the, the weekend. So we have to, I mean, share personal information with the team so that we are a team. Yeah, very interesting. And yeah, I totally agree that, uh, as, you, as you said, we are not robots and uh, we need somehow to create a, a connection between the team and uh, keep them engaged and uh, knowing that they are important. And uh, as a leader, you are here to try to help them and yeah, keep the, the team uh, healthy. The mental health, yeah. Yeah. If it's face-to-face, -face, that's really easy. Let's go and eat somewhere. That food makes things easy. <laughs> sure, sure. Let's drink something together. Yeah, but it's remotely, it's really a challenge. Yeah. That's why uh, uh, the human connection is really important when we talk about remote work. Yeah, and as you mentioned, from time to time, when you have the opportunity to uh, like uh, stay uh, pre uh, present in the same place and like uh, in some like, team lunch or something like this, really important as well. Yes, and if you remember, we work together and every time we had a chance to go outside, it's, we take photos. So I have tons of those photos. Every time I see them or share them with the people um, uh, in the photo, they, I mean, they remember the connection. They feel like we are very close. Yeah, correct. So this is something to, something to remember. Yeah, sure, that's great. Yeah, in the, About the next steps uh, in your career, uh, what would you like to do next? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm still like trying out 
I didn't have a, a complete opinion about me as an engineering manager or engineering lead. I have been working as a software developer for a very long time. So I have a good experience with making things. As a manager, I need to learn a lot. I need to understand so many things. That's, that's what I'm doing. I'm learning, reading books about management, uh, taking some online courses. Uh, I want to understand the limits or at least know what I don't know about working as an engineering manager, uh, understand the leadership the, in a, on a deeper level. Yeah, try it out. I, I, I have the chance to try that out in the company I work for. I can make mistakes. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, Smart is a good place to make mistakes and learn from mistakes. Nobody will punish you. And if that works for me, I guess I can continue like that. And if I feel that maybe I can go step back and maybe um, work as an individual contributor, I guess that's still an option. So I'm still trying out this leadership position and see if it makes me feel uh, good about myself. Yeah, well, personally, I, I have to say that uh, as we already work together, in my opinion, you're a great leader and you, uh, your work was very important uh, for me when I was uh, onboarding in the, in the team. I wish that you, you continued with this uh, path as a, a leader because I think you are doing a, a great job. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, if you uh, like reach some point that you think that, no, I, I, I need to I step back and go back to my uh, ID <laughs> to do some coding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, we cannot do both like being leader in an individual contributor, but yeah, you, you need to do what you feel more comfortable doing. Yes, uh, it's, it's nice to have this IDE. It doesn't complain. <laughs> or sometimes complain. So, oh yeah, so sometimes. It depends, yeah. <laughs> cool. True. Okay, so uh, yeah, we are reaching the end of the this episode and uh, I would like to know some final words from you, like something that you want to share or, or comment. So the stage is, is yours. Um, I don't have anything specific in my mind, but I was reading recently a book. I mean, since, as I said, I'm in a leadership position, so I'm trying to find the interesting books to read, to understand, or to make my, my work more efficient. So I was reading this book it's called the culture map and it's a very interesting book about how i mean how people react to things so like let's say for example um if we talk about trust so trust is different from one place to another so if you have a team that you have a team member from asia and some people from uh, middle east and some people from europe and, and us and maybe other places like Brazil, the way they build trust is different. So you need to understand that, and you need to understand how people work together. Um, and this is this was really like eye-opening book. Anyone working with an international company should have a read, uh, should read that book. It gives you a, a lot of understandings of things that happens, and maybe you don't understand why people react in, the, in that way. So that's one recommendation. I'm still reading the book, so this is one thing I um, I wanted to share with you and the people listening. It's a very interesting book if you work in an international uh, place. 
Okay, thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I will add to the episode description the name of the book if anyone is interested to have a look. And yeah, thank you for that, uh, Abes. And yeah, it was a real pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for uh, all your uh, stories and the experience that you share here in this episode was really interesting. Thanks. I hope, uh, yeah, it would, it would be interesting for the people listening to us. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it will. <laughs> Thank you. So, bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Unknown Developer Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show and had the opportunity to learn something new. See you on the next one.